Yes, if you'd be grateful if your Bible's open. If you're in your youth church program, that's year six to year eight, your program's about to begin. Uh, for the rest of you, if you've not met me before, my name's Peter. I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. It's just, it's just great that you're with us. And we're going to be looking uh, at this part of the Bible together. And I don't know about you, but I've actually loved, really loved looking at the birth of Jesus outside of Christmas time. Because uh, I don't know about you, Christmas time to me just feels so rushed. And even on Christmas Day services, when we look at passages like this, it's often hard to dig as deep as we can, well, as we can today, uh, because of some of the time pressures and things that happen on, on Christmas Day. Um, and one of the important things I want to take a bit more, I'm going to take some time today, which we wouldn't usually do on Christmas Day to actually see, is I want you to think through, I want you to notice the real world that Jesus was born into. Not the kind of um, myth or legend or Christmas card version of the world. <laughs> but the world as it really was for Jesus when he arrived. And I, there's, two, there's two things in particular I want to highlight for you, what the real world was like back then. Firstly, I, wanted, I want you to see the world on a smaller scale. On a small scale, the world that Jesus came into can be described as Israel in exile. On a small scale, Israel in exile. And you might be thinking, well, Pete, what, what's all that about? Uh, Israel in exile means that, well, in Old Testament times, about 600 years earlier than this, the nation of Israel, if you don't know if you know, but it had been virtually destroyed. It had been overrun by the superpowers of the time that just happened to be the kingdom of Babylon under the king called Nebuchadnezzar. And during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Israel was just overrun it was a national catastrophe and the nation of Israel was, well, this little nation was not completely but basically kind of, kind of taken off the face of the planet. Like Israel lost their king, they lost their, she lost her independence, she lost virtually everything. All that was left, they weren't, it was virtually wiped off. There, there was a little bit left. It was a little community of refugees taken over to live over there in Babylon. And so they really were virtually destroyed, exiled in Babylon. And for centuries, things really got, well, they got a little bit better, but barely any better. Because while the superpowers came and went in those 600 years, the nation of Israel never really rose again. Uh, see, the Babylons fell and the next superpower, the Persians, rose up. And then the Persians fell and the Greeks rose up. And then the Greeks fell and the Romans rose just the passing of history, the falling and rising of superpowers. But right through that time, the little nation of Israel, it never really recovered. And, and to add to that, what, what was happening during this time, the, the, some of the prophets of, of, of Israel, some of the Old Testament prophets, God was speaking through them and telling the nation that this doesn't, wasn't just an accidental national disaster. This was, in fact, God's judgment on them. And the prophets had been pointing out that the nation of Israel, it had rejected God, rejected God's law, rejected God's ways. And so this exile was God's judgment on them. And still in the days that we are reading of in Luke, in the days of Caesar Augusta, the Roman superpower now, I mean, they still hadn't recovered. And if anyone alive at the time had any insight at all, any understanding at all, they would have realized that the nation was still under the judgment of God. Yes, they had come back to the land. Yes, centuries earlier, they had rebuilt the nation to a certain extent. 
but it was never like it had been. And they never regained their independence and they were not living at ease in the land. <coughs> and in fact, they hadn't recovered much, really much at all. God's judgment was still on them. They were, they were still, I'm using that expression, in exile. And those alive at the time, if they had that insight, could still see that they were separated from God, distant from him, under his judgment. That was the world on the small scale that Jesus was born into. But on a bigger scale, if you take a step back, the real world, not the imaginary world, but the real world that Jesus was, was, was born into, what the world was like was the world was in rebellion. The whole world was in rebellion. Because you see, what Israel was as a little nation on a small scale was the whole world en masse. And so the whole world in which we live in is a world that had rejected God. And I'm guessing as I'm saying that you kind of don't need too much convincing about that because, I mean, just look around. We are living in a world uh, that has rejected God's rule and living in a world where, where, look, there's just so much friction and violence and hatred and suffering. There's just so much wrong with this world because it's, it's, it's alienated from God. It's, it's rejected God. It's, under, it's exiled from God. Just like Israel was on a small scale, that was a little picture of what the whole world was on a much larger scale. And this is the world into which um, Jesus was born. And we are following the story of Jesus, as Luke tells it, as he's carefully investigated, as he entered into that very real world. And I think it's important to have that understanding of the world as it was, the world in exile, that will really help you understand the things that tumble out in the passage we see today. Because today we, uh, we come to the, well, the eighth day of Jesus' life, actually. Look here at, um, come with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 21. We'll pick it up there. It says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Now, in that little verse, I just want to highlight really two things for you, just to, to start off with. That, that notice that Jesus and the law here, now, a fundamental part of the Old Testament law was uh, that male children were to be circumcised on the eighth day. That was something that was part of the sign of the covenant, and it went way back to Abraham's time. That's where it all began. And Abraham was given the sign of circumcision as a sign of the covenant, and Jesus was born into that world, into that Jewish world, into that small world there. And he lived under the law of Jewish people, and on the eighth day, he was circumcised and Luke is trying to point out to us that here is Jesus and he really does identify with the human beings he's been born into. And that really matters. This, this is the only, the verse will come on the screen here, Hannah. Uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this much later in Galatians chapter 4. He says about when the time set had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as son, as, uh, of sonship. Luke is just highlighting very much Jesus came into our human situation. He identified fully and completely with those to whom he had come in order to come and save them. The second thing I want you to notice here is the name he's given. He's given the name we get told there, Jesus. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word or name Joshua. And the word literally means the Lord saves. 
and with the background with the real world background in place i think what you're meant to be seeing there is that this world that was under god's judgment and in exile from god and in that context this child is given the name the lord saves well after this eighth day luke takes us quickly to a short time later and we find ourselves with Jesus fulfilling and, and his mum and dad fulfilling other requirements of the Jewish law. Look at that verse uh, 22. It says that uh, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what's said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now that that is the scene, isn't it? That you don't often see on the see on the um, on the Christmas cards. You know, the two young pigeons about to be sacrificed. You know, that's not the kind of Christmas card version of Christmas that, that that you get. And and at one level, what you can see here to us might seem strange, might seem ancient, may even seem somewhat primitive. But what I want you to see here is that for Mary and Joseph, they do recognise God's law. And even though that they had been given a very special place in God's plans for the whole universe, they didn't think, therefore, so highly of themselves that they went, well, you know how you know, people who think too highly of themselves can go, yeah, those rules are for other people. and why can they, they don't apply to me. I'm more important. That's not Mary and Joseph at all, isn't it? Notice the great care and devotion and commitment to precise details that Mary and Joseph have when it comes to submitting themselves to God's ways. Uh, and although this passage is not primarily about parenting, I, I do want you to notice just their parenting attitude here of as they have the child, there's no kind of casual approach to facing, uh, following God in their life. Now, there is a deep love of God that has got this commitment and care. There's no just, oh, we'll just have the vibe of Christian things and our kids will get it. There's a deep sense here of, of a commitment to precision in following God that leads to great obedience, which is a model that the children can't miss. And now while Mary and Joseph are in Jerusalem, they do meet these two people. Uh, two people, as Danny read it for us, that you'd notice, uh, that who by God's enabling appear, and they understand the significance of the baby that's been born to Mary and Joseph, or to Mary. The first one we meet is an old man by the name of Simeon. And Luke does tell us, he wants us to get a bit more feel for the background of this man. Look at verse 25. We get told there, now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was, a right, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. See, meet Simeon. He is a, well, what's he like? He's righteous and devout, Luke tells us. That is, he's a man who does take God seriously. Another man, actually, who lived under God's law and who loved God, who wanted to live a life that was pleasing for God, uh, to God. And Luke tells us here that he is waiting, it says, for the consolation of Israel. And you read that and you can think, oh, that's a strange phrase. What does that mean? What does the word consolation mean? It's a word that, that means to bring comfort. Now, when you are consoling someone, there is someone in distress 
and you bring consolation to them, you bring comfort to them in the midst of their distress. And so what you can see is Simeon had the insight to know that his nation was in distress, that it was under God's judgment. He knew that they were really still in exile and he was waiting, waiting for comfort, waiting, it says there, for the consolation of Israel. And the whole reason he's waiting, because although those Old Testament prophets had said, yes, understand the reality that we're living in, we have been exiled from God, we're under God's judgment, but they also said this situation won't last forever. There is deliverance that God will bring. There is a consolation for Israel coming. And Simeon is there waiting for it. And I just want you to notice his, his person and his character at that point. Because as far as he is concerned, the greatest reality of his life that loomed larger than anything else that was going on, the greatest reality was God and looking for comfort from him. How it was between him and God, how it was between his fellow Israelite people and God, in fact, how it was between the world and God, that is really what mattered to him more than anything else. And he was looking forward to this consolation arriving. And as you notice that, as Luke points that out, I think it's worth asking yourself in your own heart, I mean, what, what looms large in your life? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, your next car, next house, new job. I mean, what looms large in your life? I reckon if you ask yourself that seriously, most of us are probably a bit of a contrast to Simeon here. Could you honestly say that what looms large in my life is God and my relationship with him and others' relationship with him? In fact, the whole world's relationship with him, that is what looms largest in my life? That, that's Simeon. It ought to be us. And we read that on this day, the Holy Spirit was on this old man and on him in a special way. It was revealed to him that he wouldn't die until he'd seen the Messiah. And so that very day, moved by the Holy Spirit, he goes into the temple courts. And who should he bump into while he's there? Well, we know the story. that He bumps into Mary and Joseph and their child. And look what happens. Look, look at halfway through verse 27. It says, when the, when the parents brought the child Jesus to do... Uh, to do for him what the custom of the law required Simeon took him in his arms his old man took him in his arms and praised God said sovereign Lord as you have promised you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of the nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles for the glory of your people Israel and man if you were Mary and Joseph listening you go man this is remarkable remarkable in fact even not as Mary and Joseph just for us ourselves looking in just notice how remarkable these words are sovereign Lord he says because I've seen this child you may now dismiss your servant in other words you can take me now I can die now and I will die in peace he says I will die at ease I mean, you know someone really gets Jesus when they can honestly say, now I've got him. 
you can take me. You know they get it. Because they can see so clearly that Jesus is indeed at the centre of the universe. Jesus is indeed what the, whole, what the universe is all about. And you just think of this old man, Simeon. I, I, we're not told if he's married or not. Maybe he's got grandkids. I don't know. But just say he's got grandkids. He can actually, he's actually in the temple going, oh, don't, don't worry so much about my grandkids. I've seen this kid. And because I've seen this kid, you can take me now. I may never see my grandkids again, but I can die in peace because I've seen this one. You can now dismiss your servant. I mean, man, that is clarity, isn't it? You won't hear too many grandparents speaking like that. I may not see my grandkids again, but I've seen this one. You can take me. I may not get a job, uh, a new job. I may not get the overseas holiday, but now I've got Jesus. Lord, you can take me. It doesn't matter. And if he did dismiss me right now, Zechariah says, I would, I would die in peace, he says. And again, I just think, wow. That you could say, I've seen this child and the hope, the comfort he brings, and so I can die in peace. That is an amazing statement because in my experience, death is rarely peaceful. Rarely peaceful. When people actually face it, it's normally normally a time of terrible turmoil even in a time where it's relatively a straightforward death often there are regrets a time of wishing that things were otherwise of wishing that i had done these things or wishing i hadn't done those things for most people in the face of death there is fear and regret and pain and it's far from peaceful so how is it possible for Simeon to go, I've seen this child, he can, I can die in peace? It is a remarkable scene, isn't it, that he could say those things. And he could say it because he knew that in seeing this child, he had seen something of international significance, something of worldwide importance. Not just consolation for Israel, but comfort for the world. Because look at verse 30 again. Look at verse 30. This is what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I mean, all he's seen is a little baby, but he knows he has seen international significance, his salvation for the world, the end of the exile, not just for Israel, but for the nations as well. And Simeon's got more to say. Look at what he says in verse 33. Uh, what we've, it says, the, mother, uh, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I mean, they are solemn words, aren't they, that, so that Simeon says. He says to Mary and Joseph, have no doubt this child will cause the rising and falling of many. Many great ones will be brought low by this child. And many low ones will be raised up 
by him. He will have that kind of profound effect on everyone. And Mary, he will have an enormous effect on you too. And of course, we as listening to what Simeon is saying ought to be going, yeah, well, he's going to have that effect on us as well. He will either bring you up or bring you down. Raise you up or bring you down. He will be spoken against, uh, Simeon says here. There is pain ahead. Your own soul will be pierced. Because this child is going to reveal and shine a light into what human beings are really like. And when any individual human being has the light of the truth of Jesus shine in on them, people are exposed. And so no doubt he will be spoken against. Well, that is Simeon and his words. It's quite an encounter. More briefly, we get told of the encounter that an aging woman named Anna has with them as well. Look, look at that. We meet her in verse 36. Look at verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Peniel, from the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. That is, to anybody who was looking for what Simeon was looking for. The consolation, the comfort for Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem. Anyone looking for a way of escape from God's judgment that was over this nation, that was over this city, and we know later on that was over the whole world. Those looking for an end to the exile. Anna's message was, you don't need to look anymore because he's here. This child is the one. And it, what, what a day for Mary and Joseph. Quite a day. But what I want you to see here is it's quite a day for us. Quite a day for us too. Because this was a day when two people realized the significance of the coming of Jesus into the world and they spoke so that those who would listen could also understand the significance of this one coming into the world. And to add to that significance, Luke then, who's carefully researched all these details, tells us of one incident, and one incident only, of Jesus' youth. Now, I'm fascinated by this little, this little, this little uh, part that Luke tells us here, because it's interesting that none of the other gospel writers give us any, any story or any insight or any, relate anything about Jesus' youth. This is the only little bit we get, which makes me think, Gee, there's got to be something really important here if this is the only bit recorded of him being, being an adolescent. And it's an incident that Luke records to us that happened some 12 years later, 12 years after Anna and Simeon. And it happened again on a trip to Jerusalem. Let's pick it up at verse 41. Look at verse 41. It says, Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem to, for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, you might not be aware of the kind of customs here and what's going on, but every year there was a celebration for Passover, and every year all the Jewish males, all the adult Jewish males, all the men were required to go up. I mean, often the whole family would go as well, 
but it was a requirement for the men to go. And there were seven days of celebration. And Luke tells us in verse 42 that when Jesus was 12 years old, he went up to the festival. Now, I, I, wonder, and I, I wonder and I think, I, I think Luke might be telling us that up until Jesus was 12 years old, he wasn't taken up. But at 12, according to the custom, because, and I think that, that it's likely to be a custom, because at the age of 12, a Jewish boy would be being prepared to take his place in adult Jewish life, which you entered at age 13. And so in preparation for that, he gets taken up, I, th I think likely for the first time, to Jerusalem at the key time of Passover. Now, what would be happening at Passover? Without going into too much detail, it's a, it, all sorts of things would be happening. All sorts of festivities and meals and events inside and outside of the temple. And it was all happening to remember the Passover, which was a time where the whole nation remembered the days of Moses. And the great salvation and rescue and help and comfort God brought his people way back when they were slaves to, in Egypt under, under Pharaoh. It's a time of celebrating and remembering how God miraculously had intervened to redeem, to rescue and to save his people. And, at, at, and Jesus at this time, he would, have, he would have been coming to the temple. The temple that was at the very heart of the Jewish religious life. The, the symbol of God living with his people. And, and as you read this, we're not given a huge amount of details. But it makes me wonder, what, what was he experienced? What, would, what was he going through? What was he learning as he took part in these seven days of festivities? I mean, clearly it did have a very profound impact on him. Because we read in verse 43, uh, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. I think the impression I get there is, is that Jesus is so absorbed by it all, so caught up in it all, that he was still caught up in it when the family left. And as they returned home, he stayed behind in the city. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll read it pretty soon that he ended up in the temple area. Not only, I think, was he absorbed in it, but what we'll see is that these things were so very, very important to him that that, that is why he stayed behind. But of course, it does lead to a very significant moment, doesn't it, for Mary and Joseph. Um, we read of their journey home. Look at verse 44. Uh, thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives. I, I think this is a situation we could all kind of uh, recognise and understand. You know, a whole group of people travelling together, maybe like the way Aussies travel together in some ways. that all the, you know, Maybe all the guys are, are hanging around together at one part of the company and all the girls are having their chat on the other end of the company. And, and Mary's over there thinking Jesus is with Joseph that way and Joseph's over here thinking Jesus is with Mary over there and and that kind of common common enough thing happens with parents and the child the child is lost and although the details are small can you imagine the panic uh, imagine the panic when you realize you haven't left your wallet behind you haven't left your keys behind but you've left the savior of the world behind 
I don't think they were into attachment parenting somehow. I mean, that, that, that it took them this long to work out that he was lost, by the by. But, uh, nothing, uh, but nothing will put panic in the heart of a parent more than suddenly realising that you don't know where your child is. And in their panic, what they do what you expect them to do. Look at verse 45. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. I mean, as far as they're concerned, Jesus is lost. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is not where he ought to be. He's lost. He's not where he ought to be. But as readers of Luke's gospel, if you've been reading carefully enough, you may well have been asking the question at this point. Now, who's really lost here? Who's really not where they ought to be here? Verse 46 tells us that after three days, they found him in the temple courts. I think three days means, I think a journey out was day one, realizing he's lost a journey back day two, and then day three, a day looking for him. I, I think that's what Luke is getting at there. And after these three days, there they find him safe and well, just sitting amongst the teachers, listening, listening to them and asking questions. And for us who are the keen readers of Luke's gospel, it really actually should be no surprise to us where he's found. Given what we've heard the angels say, given what Simeon and Anna have just spoken about, given what actually Zechariah and Mary sung about in their songs, it really should be no surprise to us as readers where he is. There's no indication in the passage of how he survived for those three days and where he slept. The reason being, I think, because that's not the point. It's, it's not that important. What really mattered, though, was what the year 12-year-old Jesus was doing, that he was there in the temple. And that was an important point because what was happening at the temple was it's not just a focal point for the festivities of the, of the Passover, but the temple was a center of Bible teaching. So the Bible teaching, and as it would take place, it would often take place in the form of question and answer, where a Bible teacher who was located there in the temple courts would, would, would take someone and ask them questions. And a dialogue would ensue. And the person would give answers, and then the, the teacher would correct the answers or encourage the answers. And the person being taught could then ask their own questions, and, and they could get, and, and there's this whole back and forth going thing on. And, and, and when Joseph and Mary find Jesus, they find him among the teachers, and there he was, listening answering asking and in verse 47 we read everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers now when, when they see that amazement i don't think that's suggesting to us that anything miraculous is happening there like somehow a 12 year old boy's learnt the whole bible cover to cover word for word and was just reciting it everyone's going man who can do that no no i don't think that's what's getting at here I think it's that they had never come across someone for whom knowledge of God came so naturally or so profoundly with such deep insight. And it's, we are not given any details of really what he said and what he asked. But what we do get in verse 48, look at verse 48. What we do get is that when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously waiting for you. And as soon as you read that, you kind of go, yeah, they're ordinary everyday parents, aren't they? They're just like, they're ordinary. They're astonished, yes. This is not quite what they were expecting. Thankfully, it's not quite what they were fearing. But their annoyance and even their anger 
is seen in their words. And what I find interesting in that statement Luke records for us there is the precision with which Luke describes Mary's words. Son, she says. Not Jesus. She calls him son. Your father, she says. Not Joseph, your father. And noticing that, 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 that precision of son and father, look at what Jesus says in reply. Verse 49, why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Literally, it says there, my father's things. Some of the older translations had, I had to be in my father's business. Uh, it's the idea of I needed to be involved in what my father was doing. And what we're being shown here is that the panic you see from Joseph and Mary, that panic, Jesus is saying to them, that panic is coming from your ignorance. Understandable ignorance, yes. It's been 12 years since the angels and the songs and Mary and Simeon and, and, and Anna, yes, perfectly understandable. But their panic did come from their ignorance. And so Jesus speaks into Mary's ignorance. And so gently speaks of his father, his true father, and therefore, in implication, his true sonship. And he speaks of his father's house and his father's things and his father's business. And what was mum and dad's response? Verse 50. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Of course they didn't. I don't think I would have either if I was one of them at the same time. But one day, they would. They would understand. Now, quite carefully, Luke ends this incident with what happened afterwards. Very important for us to see. If you look at verse 51, we get told that uh, about Jesus. Then Jesus, he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Uh, it's really important that Luke ends it that way because it would be a great misunderstanding to see this Jerusalem incident and, and just read it as the act of a kind of rebellious early teenage you know, aggression. That Jesus was just going, you know, my parents, they don't understand me. And so I don't care what they think. I'm just going to hang around behind and ignore them. That nothing of the sort is happening here, I doubt it. Jesus is a real human being living under the law, living under the law, the, one of the commandments that says, honour your father and mother, and he honours his mother and father. And Luke is at pains to point that out, that he honoured them by obeying them, because that is what God's requir requir law required of it. Do not see this as an act of teenage rebellion. And with all that in place, we get to the point of going, well, what do we make of it? That's, that's what's recorded for us. What are we to make of it? Well, I've got two, two, uh, two quick things I want, I want to make of it. One is, I want to speak to the youth here in church. First, here is an example of Jesus in his youth. And what I want you to see here is the example of honouring parents. It's important for adult children to, to honour their parents too. That, that, that requirement never, never goes away. But it is common for youth to think, my parents, man, they just don't get me. They do not understand me. And because they don't get me, it, it's, it's kind of okay for me because they don't really understand me to just ignore them sometimes. And if, 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 you, if you're a youth here and you've ever felt like that, can I, can I urge you, 
consider Jesus. If you think it's hard for you, think about what it was like for him. If you don't have parents who understand you, can I tell you, Jesus did not have parents who always understood him. At one level, he, is, he is God the Son. He's infinitely greater than them. He, he is the creator of the universe. Actually, he was their creator. You've got to get that. And they were not perfect. They were sinners. They made mistakes. Do you think they really got him? This incident shows you they didn't always get him. And yet, even though he is the greater one than them, we get told here, he submitted to them. He obeyed them. Never think that submission is a statement that means you are less than someone that you're submitting to because Jesus submitted and obeyed to his parents. But if you think you've got parents that don't get you and so they get it wrong again and again and again and again and therefore you think you can give yourself permission to just ignore and defy them. Here is Jesus submitting himself to parents who didn't get him. Good enough for Jesus? Can I say clearly good enough for you? But as important as that is, the last thing I want to highlight then is, is the particular issue of comfort. Consolation for Israel, but more than that, consolation for a whole world in exile. And it comes in this child that Anna and Simeon keep pointing us to. And, and Luke is at pains, I think, to keep telling us that Jesus was fully human. He was fully a baby. He was fully a toddler. He was fully a teenager. He was fully an adult because he was fully human. Not half human, fully human. And more than that, Luke is trying to tell us here, a fully perfect human, perfectly keeping the law, perfectly obeying his parents, perfectly godly, never once sinning. And that's an important point that Luke wants to establish here early in his gospel because as, as his gospel continues and as the baby grows into a man and as the man goes to the cross, Jesus at the cross, the whole reason the cross will, will work to forgive you your sins is because, well, firstly, because he's human. Now, he's going to take your place. He cannot take your place unless he's like you, unless he's a human like you. You, know, if you, you, cannot, you, know, you cannot swim in the Olympics and, and you're doing a relay race and all of a sudden Ian Thorpe can't swim for us and that's okay, we'll just substitute Flipper in and the dolphin can swim for us. You know, and now you can't do that because he's, the dolphin's not a human. And got, there's a sense where the cross won't work unless if Jesus is going to take your place, if he's like you, if he's fully human. This is, Luke is laying the ground for us going, yeah, for him to bear your sins for you, he has to be human. That's emphasized here. But of course, as a human, he could only take the place of one other human. How can if he's just one human, he can take, he's a sinless human, so he doesn't have to die for his own sins. Perhaps he could die for your sins, but maybe only one other's sins because uh, one, one for one, you know, one human for one human. That's a fair exchange. But Luke is at pains here to say, I had to be in my father's house and among my father's things. Because not only is he fully human, Luke is at pains to tell us here that he is fully God. He's not just the son of God, but as we saw in the kids' talk, he is God, the son, the second member of the Trinity. And it's that combination of fully human and fully God that is the consolation, the comfort 
for the whole world because he's, his death on the cross won't just pay for one, but the quality of his death can pay for many because he's fully God. And if you had insight to take that in, then you could be like Simeon this morning and you could say, Lord, you can take me. It's my prayer that you can take it all in and be astounded and follow Jesus. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus and just how great he is. Father, help us to have Jesus as the one who looms large in our life. That as followers of him, the, our exile, our distance from you would be completely over. That we'd be adopted as your children and brought close. Because the one who was born under the law, born of a woman, fulfilled the law to redeem us. Help us to follow him carefully.